Welcome to the latest episode of Big Screen Batman, released through Bureau42.com. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler, and as you could probably tell, I'm a little under the weather. I'm not sure how my voice is going to hold up, so I've gone through my notes this time and tried to trim it down to the absolute basics, even though when we're talking about The Dark Knight from 2008, there is a rather large elephant in the room that needs to be dealt with. So I'm going to be talking fairly quickly, and I've been trying to hold off, hoping that my voice would improve before the release. It is now November 13th as of the time of this recording, and it's due for release three hours from now, so it's going to be a fast record and a fast edit, so let's get going. The Dark Knight is the second film in the Chris Nolan trilogy starring Christian Bale as Batman. It was released on July 18th, 2008. The Budget was estimated at $185 million. The opening weekend box office was $158,411,483 in U.S. sites alone. The final domestic gross, as of July 19, 2012, including some re-release numbers, is $534,858,444. So with a rule of thumb of two to three times the domestic or the budget for the domestic box office to be profitable, this came in at 2.89 times. So it's a pretty safe bet that it was profitable in the domestic release. The final worldwide gross is $1,004,558,444. Now, the worldwide is not quite as profitable as the domestic, but it does add a lot to the total. That is about 5.43 times the budget, so it is safe to say this made money before the DVD and Blu-ray releases, which have also sold well. In fact, this film holds the record for the highest grossing DC Comics adaptation to date, beating the 1989 Batman for the title. It is tied for the fastest film to 100 million, making it in two days. It is the record holder for the fastest to 200, 300, 400, and 500 million, and it broke the opening weekend record lost that to Harry Potter Deathly Hallows Part 2, which then lost that to The Avengers. Now, Internet Movie Database users have given it an average score of 9.0 out of 10, putting it at number 4 in the top 250. On the second day of release, it was actually number 1. It has since come down, as we've got a more representative sample of the population. The people who saw this in the first two days were the ones who bought tickets in advance and lined up and were excited for it. So currently follow falls behind Shawshank Redemption and the first two Godfather films as the greatest movie of all time as voted by IMDb users, but it's ahead of Pulp Fiction, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Schindler's List, Twelve Angry Men, Return of the King, and Fight Club. Now compare this to Batman Begins, which is at 109 out of 250 on the time of this list, or on this list as of the time of this writing. The list does change, particularly with the just-released Interstellar at number 11, which is going to fluctuate a lot, just as this did when it first came out. But this is easily one of the darkest superhero movies that have been made so far. There's a lot of tragedy and darkness, both on and off screen involved. And we're going to get to the big tragedy, the one that everyone knows, when we wrap up this entire podcast discussing Heath Ledger. In the meantime, the other people who were involved, a lot of the original cast was brought back. Uh, New characters were introduced, including Aaron Eckhart playing Harvey Dent and Two-Face. Now, he's got 38 acting credits going back to 1992. So before this, his big roles were in The Company of Men, Your Friends and Neighbors, Any Given Sunday, Aaron Brockovich, Nurse Betty, Possession, The Core, The Missing, Paycheck, Frasier, 
Thank You for Smoking, which is the role that caught Chris Nolan's eye and helped get him cast in this, Black Dahlia, the 2006 version of Wicker Man, and following this film, he did Love Happens, Battle Los Angeles, Olympus Has Fallen, I, Frankenstein, London Has Fallen, with more in production. This is actually a nice turn on Two-Face. This character is one of the oldest villains in Batman history. And one of the things I like about it is that they did introduce Harvey Dent as a supporting character and established him as Batman's friend several months before turning him into Two-Face. So it's not like, you know, MacGyver's good old friends that just come out of the woodwork that we've never seen before, or the other action hero cliches friends who just pop up in time to die or have other tragedies happen. He was legitimately established as a friend in the comics before he turned into a villain. And this is a little more faithful to that comic book character than the Schumacher edition. In here, Dent and Bruce Wayne were not as friendly with each other as they traditionally were in the comics, but this time they're both interested in the same woman. There's a little more tension, and they do clearly have the same goals for Gotham. They just have two very different approaches for getting there. So it is actually a very interesting relationship dynamic that was introduced in the way that they did this. We also see a little bit more representative version of the coin toss. When Harvey Dent did it in Batman Forever, as played by Tommy Lee Jones, uh, who was just playing it the way it was scripted. The main issue with the coin is that, you know, to Harvey Dent in that one or Two-Face would flip it as often as he wanted until he got that scarred face and just use that as an excuse to let himself off the leash. This one is more like the comic book version, where he flips it once and the decision is made, he follows the coin. Sadly, it's less between good and evil as it is more between greater and lesser evil but at least it's a final decision in a single toss. So Eckhart played the role very well. And the makeup in particular, going with CGI to remove parts of his face rather than put prosthetics on it, was extremely effective. Now the character that was recast is Rachel Dawes. She was originally Katie Holmes. But between Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, Tom Cruise pretty much went insane in the middle of a show with Oprah Winfrey. Katie Holmes and Tom Cruise's relationship at home was in trouble. She was no longer a dependable box office draw. Chris Nolan asked her to return anyway because he appreciated the level of work that she brought. He thought she'd do well again. She chose to make Mad Money instead, which, I mean, considering I didn't even know that movie existed until I read that was her choice, may not have been the best choice for her notoriety. I haven't seen it. It could have been a great role that proved more variety and more acting depth and range for her? I don't know. Uh, in any event, Maggie Gyllenhaal was brought in to fill the role of Rachel Dawes, and she did a good job as well. I'm honestly not entirely sure which actress I prefer in the role. Now, as another new character, we have Nestor Carbonell. He plays the mayor. To me, the roles that I know him best as are Batman Well in the live-action Tick, in very much a Batman parody, as well as the role of Tom Montero in the all-too-short-lived Century City. That was an excellent series. It was aired out of order. I, To my knowledge, it has never been released on DVD, and I have been watching for it in my weekly DVD release columns. Wish it was available. It is a great show. If you can see it, track it down. He does have a long list of credits with numerous other guest spots. For some people, he's probably best known for a recurring role in 93 episodes of Suddenly Susan. We also have 
Eric Roberts as Sal Marconi. Yes, he is Julia's older brother, although from what I've heard and can dig up online, it doesn't sound like they get along very well. Uh, in fact, it seems like he's been working for an acting career his whole life. His earliest dated credit on the IMDb is 1964. He's got earlier credits than that with no firm release date. So that would have made him 14 or earlier when he started getting the prominent jobs. Meanwhile, Julia's career started when she was hanging out, waiting for her her big brother on a set, and somebody saw her and basically put her in something. And her career exploded far more quickly. And rumor has it that he's resentful of the fact that he's been working his butt off his whole life and his sister just stumbled into it and lucked out, essentially riding on his coattails, because he's the reason she was on set, and her career is a lot more prominent than his. Now, I mean, looking at his career, he's got a lot of credits, but this is one of the more prominent ones. The other role that a lot of us know him better as would be as the master in the 1996 Doctor Who TV movie, or maybe a few voice acting roles. So Marconi is a character in the comics, and in fact, he is the mobster that poured sulfuric acid on Harvey Dent's face, or splashed it on his face in the trial that led to the creation of Two-Face in the first place. Some of the other notable guest stars are Anthony Michael Hall as Mike Engel. Anthony Michael Hall is probably better known to people from his work in The Breakfast Club, the Dead Zone, Dead Zone TV series, the last season of Psych, and so forth. We've got Melinda McGraw as Barbara Gordon, who is Scully's sister Melissa on The X-Files. We've got Joshua Harto as Reese. And his character, Mr. Reese, was named in a somewhat homage to the Riddler, whose name was Edward Nigma or Enigma, as a token for Riddler, or the Riddle. Mr. Reese is the one who figures out the mysteries about the connections between Batman and Bruce Wayne. It leads to one of my favorite scenes when Reese is confronting Morgan Freeman, who basically says, in role as Lucius Fox, you think this guy spends his night as a vigilante beating up criminals, and your plan is to blackmail this individual? It is a very nice touch, and that whole character and the way it's dealt with really shows that Batman doesn't care who's out there. He is trying to protect the city and everyone in it from the criminal element. We also see Tom Tiny Lister as a thug, and actually a convict on the boat near the end, who does what you should have done 20 minutes ago, who also appeared with Gary Oldman, who returns in the movie Fifth Element as President of the Universe. And as I said, most of the cast returns. We see Morgan Freeman return, we see Michael Caine return, Christian Bale returns, and the script again, stays faithful to the comics. In this case, they're incorporating elements of many very specific issues, with emphasis on Batman Issue 1, Alan Moore stories, Frank Miller stories, Denny O'Neill stories, and even some Steve Englehart in there. For example, there's a storyline called The Laughing Fish, in which the Joker says he's going to kill someone at exactly midnight, and you find out, you know, after everyone's got him isolated and the police are protecting him, the Joker poisoned him with a 24-hour poison before he made the announcement. So he didn't have to come anywhere close to him, which is comparable to how he takes out Commissioner Loeb in this film. This also gets a lot of respect on the, the back end for the way it was made. Once again, Chris Nolan worked without a second unit. So the second unit in most movies is the group that goes out and films things that does not involve the principal actors and is often not directed by the director. So these are things like establishing shots. If you want people to know that you're filming a story that takes place 
in San Francisco, you send the second unit to go get some footage of the Golden Gate Bridge, because people see that and go, oh, we're in San Francisco. It's a lot of things like that, or exterior of houses to say, we're in this neighborhood. Nolan liked control over everything. There was no official second unit on this film. In Batman Begins, Nolan directed every frame that we see, which is not that common these days. Most films do have a second unit. Here he directed everything except the two home videos that were created by the Joker. And we'll get to those a little bit more later. But those were actually directed by Heath Ledger himself. And this is the first comic movie to win an award in a major Oscar category. It had eight Oscar nominations, including Best Cinematography, which is the first ever for a film partially shot in IMAX. Most of the action sequences in this movie, 37 minutes worth, were shot in IMAX frame footage, which is pretty close to the aspect ratio of most home theater screens. It was also nominated for Best Picture. And in fact, when they made this film, there were only four IMAX cameras in existence. And Chris Nolan had to lobby hard to get one for this movie. Uh, he eventually had to lobby hard to get two of them because they ended up wrecking one of the four that existed to make this movie. Ultimately, it is a very dark but excellent film. It is easy to recommend to anyone. It even ends on a fairly triumphant note in spite of all the tragedy in the story. So ultimately, we've got the downfall, and Harvey Dent was the man that Gotham was getting behind to turn the city around. Batman was ready to retire, and then Dent turns evil. But the public didn't know that. The film ends with Batman, who's already been called out by criminals who say, we've figured you out, we know you're not going to cross that line, we are more scared of the Joker than we are of you, do whatever you want. So he's losing his crime-fighting edge. He agrees to take the full blame for the crimes of Two-Face, specifically to convince the criminal underworld that he is a threat. So as far as the criminals are concerned, Batman is killing now. Now the people can raise Dent up as a martyr and rally behind him, which is why they say Dent was the hero the city needs, while Gordon says Batman is the hero the city deserves. So to me, Batman's intentions and message are clear. Tell the police to chase me, throw everything they have at me, I can take it, and I'll keep fighting the good fight anyway. So this film ends with Batman at the absolute top of his game. Keep that in mind when we come back next month. But sadly, as I said, there was tragedy surrounding the film both on and off screen. The film in the end is dedicated to two individuals, Heath Ledger and Conway Wycliffe. Now, Wycliffe is one of the stunt and camera special effects people. He's worked on James Bond films. He worked on a lot of those. Unfortunately, he died in a car accident while filming at the age of 41, leaving behind his wife, daughter, and son. So he is one of the two that the film is dedicated to. The far better known tragedy is the one surrounding Heath Ledger. Now, Ledger's performance is phenomenal. He ended up winning 32 awards for this role, including the Oscar, the Golden Globe, the BAFTA, the SAG, and the Critics' Choice Awards. Unfortunately, all of those awards were posthumous. When he was preparing for the role, Ledger spent six weeks living in a hotel room and not leaving that room specifically to get into character. And he is very much in character. He's a method actor, which proved to be a lot of the problem. With method acting, something that was popularized by James Dean, you immerse yourself in the character. So instead of making choices, how would this character act and acting like them, you try to become that character. So if you're playing a pharmacist, you learn how a pharmacist does their job. If you're playing a police officer, you learn how a police officer does their job. You do everything you can to become that character. 
And Ledger did that extremely well with all of his roles. And some of it surprised himself. He was ad-libbing a lot in this film. And sometimes he was already committed to it and going for it before it even occurred to him what he was doing. For example, you see some surprise at the way he claps when James Gordon gets promoted near the end of the film. The other actors aren't just surprised because it's in the script. They're surprised because that clapping was not in the script. That was totally ad-libbed. The Joker was not supposed to react to that news. He also ad-libbed quite heavily during the scene in the party at in Wade's apartment, or his penthouse, because the way the scene was scripted, the Joker would barge in, he'd interact with Alfred, then he'd move forward. Michael Caine had never seen Heath Ledger in the makeup before, and he was so blown away by the performance and complete transformation of this guy with makeup and personality that he just plain forgot to say his lines and just stood there watching. So Heath Ledger just completely improvised dialogue that moved the story forward in the same way and got everything established while Michael Caine just stood there. Ledger designed his own Joker makeup with stuff that he bought at the corner drugstore because he felt that would be the way that this Joker is doing it. This wasn't permanent scarring. He was just doing the makeup himself, which is why the character has white makeup on his hands. That was also Heath Ledger's idea, is that he'd be applying his own makeup and sometimes get his hands dirty. So once he came up with a design and brought it in and got it approved, the professional makeup team had to reproduce that design every day and ended up doing it with some very lightweight facial appliances that Heath Ledger was very happy with. It was the most comfortable prosthetics he's ever worn. Apparently he was... He found it easy to forget he was even wearing them. When Batman is beating up the Joker as part of the interrogation, Ledger wanted to stay in character, so he actually told Christian Bale not to hold back and to really beat on him as hard as he could. He got so involved and so in character, he didn't even realize that the You Complete Me line that he spoke was a Brokeback Mountain reference, which was his big starring role prior to this. Although he was also in A Knight's Tale and a number of other movies. His career was well-established as the pretty boy romantic lead. And there were a lot of people who did not expect him to be a good Joker. None of whom seemed to want to claim ownership of that negative opinion now that the movie's actually out. This Joker really is the way I like my Joker. It's the, my favorite film incarnation of the Joker. This is a character who is a brilliant planner who sends others into chaotic frenzies. Not, you know, his crimes are not for personal gain. It's to manipulate society and cause this chaos and panic. But he plans it and choreographs it so well and understands society so well. Even when this chaos is erupting around him, he can just dance through the raindrops exactly as he planned and still do whatever he planned to do. His personal history is both unknown and irrelevant. He is who he is. And he basically lives to prove Batman wrong and to screw with the bat. So Ledger did a phenomenal job. He did it as a method actor. And unfortunately, that ended up being his downfall. He got so immersed in the mind and personality of the Joker that the Joker actually would not let him go. So even when he was moving on and trying to film the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, he was still haunted by thoughts of the Joker and the personality of the Joker, and that just wouldn't stop to the point that he couldn't sleep well because he was constantly waking up due to nightmares. He ended up in therapy to help cope with that and was put on anti-anxiety meds and sleeping pills just to help him sleep. And they tried a few prescriptions. One of the last ones that they tried, 
unfortunately didn't eliminate the nightmares. Instead, it just put him out enough that he couldn't wake himself up from the nightmares. So they continued and escalated. And from what people have been able to reconstruct, he was trying to reach his doctor to report this and to deal with it. Couldn't reach his doctor on that particular day. And it appears he tried just a double dose of his regular prescription, presumably in the hopes that he would actually be able to sleep peacefully. Unfortunately, that double dose was enough to prove fatal. So while the Oscar for this film was well-deserved, it is a phenomenal performance, I really don't know if getting so immersed in the role was worth it for that Oscar. It is unfortunate. Ledger proves in this film and others, if you go into them with an open mind, that he is or was a very capable performer who deserved a longer career than this. Unfortunately, that's the note that we're ending on as we discuss The Dark Knight. Please join us again for the final chapter in Big Screen Batman before it becomes Silver Screen Superheroes in 2015, which will be released on the 14th of December 2014, the last month in the 75th anniversary of Batman. Thank you for listening.